Gresham College presents Bach's Little Organ Book by Professor Richard Townend. Good evening and welcome to St Margaret Lothbury, the friendliest church in the city of London and the one with the best organ too. This organ was built in 1801 by George Pike England and it is in its original state and it is the sort of organ that Bach expected. When you see the CD covers with the great St. Barbo Harlem on the front, Bach never played organs like that. All his organs in Thuringia were very dumpy instruments, all contained within a case, just like the one up here. And the other connection is on the sheet of paper you have here. This is Mendelssohn's autograph of the chorale from the Orgelbuchleine Hofstudier, which we will come to very shortly. The connection is that, of course, Mendelssohn came here in 1837. But, more important than that, Mendelssohn was the man who rediscovered Bach. Incredible to think that this composer we think of as one of the greatest composers ever was completely forgotten after his death. His music was just left on library shelves. And it was Mendelssohn, when he was in Leipzig, who went to the Thomas Kirk Library and discovered, among other things, the St. Matthew Passion and made the first modern performance of the St. Matthew Passion. And from there he discovered other parts of Bach and he brought it to England, connection through Prince Albert and Queen Victoria. And there he met Sterndale Bennett, William Sterndale Bennett and Samuel Wesley. And those two people began the renaissance of Bach and his music and his playing and performance in England. And Samuel Wesley was the man who brought Felix Mendelssohn to this church. So here is a big connection to us. But first of all, I need your help this evening. If you thought you were just going to sit there and listen, you're quite mistaken. I need your help. I want you to, to help me a little bit. I want you to pretend that it's 1714 and you're in the Ducal Chapel in Weimar and up there is Johann Sebastian Bach and you are Thuringian peasants. You're Thuringian peasants, you're in church, Sunday morning, and you have to sing the chorale, Vater uns in Himmelreich. This is the great Lutheran chorale of the Lord's Prayer, and this is the year of the Reformation. This is very important here. And to make this lecture work today, I want to take you through the book and solve all the problems with music. So you have to be the first problem solvers. So I hope you're in good voice. Now, you are peasants, so you mustn't sing like King's College, Cambridge. You've really got to let it rip. If you can't do the German, just be Italian and sing ah. So long as you make a big noise, we'll be all right. So we'll have a little practice, a Vaterunser, and don't forget, they don't sing very fast. We'll be quick enough. So off we go. Let's have a go. Eh?
you're really wonderful. Oh, come back on Sunday, we'll do it all over again. Once upon a time, once upon a time, this was such an easy story to tell. Johann Sebastian Bach was the greatest organist of his time, without a doubt. He'd made his time in Weimar up until 1717. He'd been the great ducal organist. He'd written most of his organ music at that time. He'd played his organ music. He'd started writing the cycles of cantatas. He was famous for approving the building of new organs. But he was a difficult man. And he thought, I want to change. I don't want to get up early on Sundays anymore and have a three-hour sermon. I want to change. The Prince of anhalt kirthen wants a chamber musician. Some of my better sons are already playing very nicely on their violins and such like, and they could play in the orchestra too, and I could start writing orchestral music instead. So he popped off and he got the job. And being a difficult man, he came back and he said to the Duke of Weimar, I've got this job in anhalt kirthen really, I'd rather like to go and I'm leaving. You can't say that to a duke. And the duke said, oh, no, you're not. Put him in prison. Prison was like house arrest. One month prison. What should he do? So he took a book and he wrote a title page and he wrote at the top of every page the title of a chorale. Per page, one chorale. And started off writing these wonderful chorale preludes all one page long. And on the front, he put that it was to make a beginning organist into a really good organist. That was the idea of the book. Every way you could make a chorale prelude, because that's the main thing that an organist had to do in those days. He would have to play at the beginning of the service a preludium, at the end a sortie, but in between he had to prelude on the chorales. That was the important thing in the Lutheran church. So that's what Bach did. And he made this wonderful collection the only thing is, the story's not true. It was put around by his first biographers. It was put around particularly by Spitter, and it's just not true. This book was an amalgam of pieces, and with modern possibilities of dating, carbon dating the, the paper, we can say that certainly this book began in 1714, not 1717, and some of the chorales actually began even earlier than that inversions. Bach would always tinker with his music, perhaps, to improve it a little tiny bit. So we can't really date the organ book line other than saying somewhere between 1707, perhaps the very earliest ones, up until 1717 when he left Weimar, the last time he needed to do this sort of thing, that's when this book was actually written or compiled. And the title page was the last thing he did. He put that on at the end. So the title page is completely fictitious. And why did he do it? Possibly because he wanted the job in the Liebefrauenkirche in Hamburg, where there was a really beautiful and wonderful organ. And he would send this book along and say, look, this is what I'll do if you'll give me the job. So I'm sorry, the story isn't true at all. So why on earth did he write this book? This is what Schweitzer said was the insight into all of Bach. This was the greatest collection and this is a book which I've been playing and studying since 1956. And I still think it is the most wonderful music of Bach in it. They're all miniatures, they're all superb, and every single one is different. 
And the great thing is you can never, never, never make up your mind how the thing should be played. So what we're going to do today, I want to ask you six questions and I want to answer them with the music. Rather than the great musicological discourse, I think the music, or I hope the music, will answer the questions. The other interesting thing is that what did Bach do with this book? Well, he used it for his teaching. Do you know in his lifetime he had some 70 pupils? 70 pupils. And they all studied from this book. And many of the later copies of this, this is the copy of Bach himself, the blended later copies are by his best pupils. And that in itself leads to some problems because, of course, pupils don't always write things down without mistakes. And so you have to decide for yourself what are the ways. And we'll find one later on in which there are so many mistakes you have to make up your own mind as to what you do. The other problem is that when he started out, and he was only having one page for each chorale, he sometimes ran out of space. And he left great gaps too where he didn't quite get round to it, you see. It's just like being a magic show, this. He had to put little tablature at the bottom when the page ran out. So instead of writing it in, in notation, he wrote it in the North German organ tablature. And it's very difficult to transcribe that. There are all sorts of questions you can make. So some of the pieces towards the end, nobody's quite sure what's the right version, which if you haven't practised enough is very useful. So the first question then is, did he really compile this for Wilhelm Friedmann, as it says on the front? Did he really do it for his son, that he'd get a good job? Did he do it just for that job he wanted himself in, in Hamburg? Or did he do it just for his pupils? And he used it for teaching ever since, and it has been used ever since for teaching. Magnificent. Why did he never complete it then? Why did he abandon it? Why didn't he get on with it? He came back to two of the chorales in Leipzig after 1727, and he expanded them and used them all over again. So why didn't he do it with more of them? Why didn't he keep Nobody ever knows. He never came back to it. There are two of them in the so-called Leipzig Great 18 chorales, but he didn't do it with any of the others, which is quite extraordinary. So what was his intention? Now, Albert Schweitzer was the first person who played these in concert and made the audience sing all the chorales all the time. So the first one, you're going to be for it, we're going to do Warte uns in Himmelreich. And first of all, we're going to play the prelude and then proposing that you're the congregation in the church, you would have heard that prelude and then you would have sung the chorale. In the old days, of course, you would have known it entirely by heart because they only sang a very small selection. And don't forget your peasants. None of the peasants could actually read or write and so therefore they learnt all the chorales for every service by heart. And every service you would have sung the Lord's Prayer, so you would have known it. So we're going to play it because it is possible that in some of these chorales this was the way in which Bach actually accompanied the congregation. You remember the famous thing of uh, when he was in Arnstadt, Bach was told off by the parish council, the consistory court, because he made the accompaniments so wonderful that either people just listened to them or else they were put off by what he did. Now the question today is, will you be put off by this wonderful accompaniment or will you succeed? So here's the prelude and at the end of the prelude you've got to rise up and sing really loud like peasants and not be put off and that'll prove point one perhaps or disprove it. <laughs> Thank you. 
Make up your own mind. But it does work, doesn't it? It does work. It's the first time anyone's ever tried to do that before, so it's wonderful. You're a great audience. There are two more questions which always spring to mind for the organist when you're playing these wonderful preludes. First of all, what speed will you play them at? Nobody knows what speed Bach played these pieces at. It's one of those eternal questions. And most of them can be played at several speeds. And joining on with that, how shall we play them? Because Bach left almost no indications whatsoever of how the registrations would be. Because, of course, every single organ is different. Every single organ in the world is different. There are no two the same. That's why you can't possibly go out and buy an electronic. They're all made for the building in which you find them. And every single one is a work of art. It takes, on the average, a year to two years to build an organ for a church, even quite a small one. Thousands of pieces inside an organ to make it work, all made especially for that place. And so Bach knew that in every place you came to, you'd have to make your own mind up as to how it would go. The very first chorale in this collection, Nun komm der Heiden Highland, is the one we'll take to answer this question. Now comes the saviour of our race. Bach wrote several preludes on this, and they're all totally and utterly different. What was in his mind when he was doing this? Now comes the saviour. Did the saviour come as a mystery? Or did he come in triumph? Because don't forget, in those days, the organist was really like a musical stained-glass window. The whole point of stained-glass windows is to tell stories to those who are uninitiated, perhaps. Those who can't read can at least see things in the stained-glass window, and they can hear the music. So the music was there to interpret the gospel just in the same way that the priest does from the pulpit. And the idea there is nun kom der Heiden Highland. How does this person come in the four Sundays of Advent and how does it change? So just to prove that we have no idea how to play these pieces at all, we're going to play nun kom der Heiden Highland twice. First of all, like a meditation. It's almost like a piece of Frescobaldi and we know that Bach had and copied out the Fiore Musicale of Giramaran Frescobaldi. And so it's quite possible it should be like a, a toccata of the elevation of the host. And therefore it's a piece of mystery. And then by total contrast, we make it into a French piece because Bach was also very, very interested in French music and copied out the books of de Quigny. And so it'll come as a French overture. And so as whereas the rhythms in the first one are very, very fluid, in the second version the rhythms are precise and crisp and short, and the registration reflects that. So two different ways for Nuncom de Heiden Highland.
now a completely different way, Bach wrote a cantata on Nuncom de Heiden Highland, cantata 61, and it begins with a French overture. So perhaps this should have been played as a French overture with these crisp rhythms and an enormous plano sound, so that it really takes uh, the triumph of the Advent to you. And don't forget, in the four Sundays in Advent, when they went to church every time, they'd have sung this chorale every single week. It's not like the, the Anglican church, where you sing a whole range of different hymns all the time. They had to learn everything by heart, so the big, the big tunes would have been sung all through a particular season. So Nun Comde Heiden, Heiden would have begun every single service in Advent, so they really got to know it. So here it comes, completely different, as a French overture. If we took a vote, who votes for the first version? And who votes for the second version? There you are, so you can't make your minds up. <laughs> so let me confuse you a little tiny bit more. The great interest of playing an organ is really the fact that all the stops are so important and make different sounds the way in which you mix them all together. And when you're playing the music of the Baroque, the music of Buxtewood and Bach, you have no idea which stops to pull out. Sometimes people ask, you know, how do you know which stops to pull out? And the answer is you don't. You can only do it by what you think is right, but you don't know because it's not been written down anywhere. So there's nobody who can tell you how Bach played his big pieces, what speed, what dynamic, what he did with them, whether he varied things, nobody knows. So all you can do and the only way to find out is to go and play old organs like this one and old organs that Bach himself played. And there are plenty of them left, particularly in East Germany, where they had no money to restore organs. And I've played organs, I've actually played an organ which Bach opened and which hasn't been restored, touched ever since. It's now in Stormtal in the middle of a field because it was a big plague and then they all moved. Wonderful to have this great experience because when you play those organs, instantly you find out how this music should be played because these organs will only play at a certain speed. They'll only do certain things. Because the connection in a tracker organ between the pipe and your finger is direct, you can make all sorts of things happen. But then you go to another bark organ and you can't do the same thing at all because it's completely different. And you have to start all over again. So then you start from another precept. When people write music, composers, they have a characteristic. And Bach had a characteristic. It was colour. If you take the orchestral music, or you take things like the Matthew Passion, 
you hear a fantastic way in which he uses the instruments to make colour. If you can think of the Matthew Passion, Erbarm Dich, with that wonderful violin solo, you're going to hear something like that in one of these chorales a little bit later on. But if you take some of the others, you know, Ich Wollbracht, and you think of the colours which he got out of the orchestra of his day by the way in which he used the instruments and the way in which he scored, and when he uses in some to Ober de Cassia, making this extraordinary sound, now you must transport that back to the organ music because you can't say that a composer who could write and score like that in the cantatas and in the passions wouldn't have played the organ like that. And you can't say that he didn't play with freedom and passion. He had 26 children. <laughs> he can't have been a dull man. So he can't have been a dull player. So you've got to put all that into the music. It doesn't mean that you romanticise it. It means that you just try and get into the feeling of Bach as a person. Because Bach only lives as a person through his music. And his music only lives if actually that personality is transferred into your ears, sitting here 300 years later listening to his music. That's the truth of being a performer, that you have to have that transmission of personality, not just the notes as they are on the page, that's just the beginning of it. So now you have to think to yourself, right, how can we then choose sounds which will make these chorales come alive given that these chorales must have an interpretation of the text, the important thing in these chorales is not just the music, but the text. Because remember, all these people knew the text by heart. They knew. So we're going to take one from Easter. Christ lag in Todesbaden. Christ lay in death's dark dungeon. And can you play this so that it sounds pretty, like having a cup of tea in a cupboard somewhere? It's got to sound gritty. It's got to sound as if you're imprisoned. It's got to be dark. The organ must sound dark. So you must find stops on the organ that sound dark. And those are the reed stops. So the, the way of playing this on this occasion is going to be dark and full of colour and full of menace and full of the sound of the reeds and the mixtures without any foundation stops. And so it'll sound really gritty. But the other thing is that you'll hear every single part, every single part, because of that registration too. So everything will be there. It may not be the way in which you like to hear this music, but it's the right way to hear it.
just to prove the point here, something completely different. Von Himmelhoch da komme ich her, from heaven above to earth I come. It's a Christmas chorale, a beautiful Christmas chorale, and it's all about the angels coming down. And so we have to interpret that, because as I told you, he's painting pictures in sound. That's the important thing. And you remember the people would know von Himmelhoch, they would know what this chorale is all about. They don't have to be taught, as it were, the tune, because that's in their head. They don't, in a sense, have to be taught the speed at which it's going, because they always sing at the same speed at that time. And so what they need is, is something to make them think about the text. Think about the text. So they must hear angels coming down. And Bach does this magically. He makes the tune in long notes, he makes the accompaniment four times faster underneath, and at the end it goes a whole scale all the way down, right down to the very bottom D of the keyboard. It's amazing. And underneath, there's an extraordinary pedal part. Boom, 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 boom. It's almost like a Swiss clock, you know? These, these little angels and the child. And you think to yourself, have you ever been to a Christmas market in Germany? Don't they have those funny little things with candles and figures going around like this, sort of carousel? So Bach is actually making a musical Christmas carousel out of this, and you can hear it because underneath is boom, 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 and this little figure here going down. And you think, well, how, how could we make that sound on the organ? How shall we register that? We've got to be imaginative. Sometimes organists pull out too many stops, particularly in cathedrals, loads of them. Sometimes the best sound on an organ is one single stop. So we'll see, if we play von Himmelhoch using only one single stop on the organ, and then we can give it a little bit more color by using the tremulant. The tremulant makes the sound just a little uneven, wobbly, just tremolo a tiny bit. One little stop. And then we shall say to ourselves, well, we don't have to actually do it at pitch. We can do it at a different sort of pitch. So instead of playing it at the standard eight-foot pitch, we'll take a four-foot flute, because angels are light, and angels float around. And that'll make a floating around sound. So we'll have a four-foot flute with a tremulant, and the boom, 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 boom. Not a 16-foot, not a great double bass going down there, but it's just an eight-foot stop underneath. And here comes Christmas magic. Christmas. That's exactly the way it should be played. Must be right. If Bach came through the door now, he'd say, oh, yeah, that's how it should go. It's making colour. It's making colour. That's the way it works. But then you have to think to yourself, how does that text actually affect the way in which you perform the music? If we take a really wonderful chorale, Ikufsudir, we call to thee, Herr Jesu Christ, 
This is a, an amazing chorale. This is the one I've given you in the, in the handout, in the copy made by Mendelssohn. Uh, Mendelssohn obviously thought this was the great gem of the Orgelbuchlein, and he made this copy, and it's perfect. It's um, on a coloured piece of paper, so it's not so easy to see, but never mind. And you know, this tradition of this being a perfect piece went on because later in the century, it was Vidor, the great organist Saint-Sulpice in Paris, it was Vidor who brought out a very fine edition of the music of Bach and who thought this was the greatest piece in the Orgelbuchlein. And he had it played at his funeral. Incredible, this man who's famous for pieces like the great Toccata and such like should choose this, but he chose this for his funeral. It was played by a man called Marcel Dupré. Marcel Dupré, who succeeded him, then brought out another edition of Bach, and he made all his pupils play. And there's actually a photograph in existence of Marcel Dupré teaching Louis Vienne and three others, but particularly Louis Vienne, who was actually playing the organ in the conservatory. He was playing Ichouf Soudir. When Dupré died, what did he have at his funeral? Ichouf Soudir. It's the most amazing piece of music, but it has so many problems for us, so many problems to solve. It's only in three parts. So you've got the tune, you've got the accompaniment in little quavers underneath, and you've got, in semi-quavers, and you've got a quaver in the pedal all the way through, all the way through in the pedal. It's the same. It's like the passing of time, really. So you have to think to yourself, you've got to separate these three sounds somehow or other. If you leave the choice of stops just to an organist, all sorts of things might happen. But go back to the Matthew Passion. In the Matthew Passion, and also in the St. John Passion, there are at least two movements which are very, very similar to this. One has a wonderful tenor solo and a viola da gamba part as an obbligato. And there's one in the Matthew Passion too, an alto solo and a viola da gamba and the continuo underneath. And that's exactly the right for this chorale. If you take that, then you can start to think to yourself, this is the way it must go. So the continuo is the pedal. Boom, 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 boom. This must be only an eight foot then, not a 16 foot. We can't have violones and double basses coming in. So just an eight foot cello, an eight foot cello. Then you must have the viola de gamba playing the left hand, all those quavers. And then you must have some sort of solo sound on the top, which is going to be the soloist. And so you can start off and you think to yourself, yeah, that's exactly right for it. But then there comes another problem. If you look at the copy there, you'll see that Bach only put ornamentation on the first half of the tune. The second half of the tune, there's no ornamentation. So you have to think to yourself, why is that? Why did he only ornament the first half? Did he get interrupted? Did he never come back and finish it off? Did he mean not to do that because of some sort of piece of story behind it? Or was it because he was writing it as a teaching piece and he was in a sense saying to the pupils, this is the way you ornament, but now you're on your own. You know, it's rather like that famous politician who had a very good range of speech writers, all of whom disliked him intensely. And he came to one very, very big speech and he was going off and he was laying his wonderful, it sounded fantastic. 
And he turned over the page and it was completely blank except for one sentence. Now you're on your own. <laughs> and that's about what happens here. Now you're on your own. And so as a performer, you have to decide. You've thought so far about how you're going to choose the stops. But now you have to decide what are you going to do halfway through when the ornamentation gives out. Are you just going to play plain notes? Well, you may say yes, but I will say no to that. No, it can't be. You can't just stop. You've got to interpret the music. And so you've got to add ornaments. So ladies and gentlemen, this evening, you are going to be at a world premiere of a piece of Bach. This is true. You may not have thought you were going to, but you've got a world premiere of a piece of Bach. Because this is how David and I think it should go with added ornamentation. And the great thing is that if you've never heard this piece before, hopefully you won't hear the join from Bach and us because you shouldn't hear that join. That's the secret of it. If you hear the join, we've lost.
I hope you're convinced. I was telling you that Bach used to paint pictures. In all his music, you have pictures. Uh, you think of all the cantatas, you think of the scoring of so many of his pieces. He's painting pictures in sound. It's an important thing. And he does it all through the Orgelbuchlein. The Orgelbuchlein is based upon certain characteristic figures that he always uses. He has a joy motif. When you hear that, you know it's a joyous piece. You hear it in a, in a wonderful piece in Dio's That's his joy motif. You also have a chromatic motif, which is for the sad pieces, and you're going to hear one of those very, very shortly. But the whole thing about it is these, these are little things that organists do. You think how many services Bach played in his lifetime, how many preludes and postludes he had to play, how many chorales he had to play, how many verses of those chorales, how many thousands of pieces he must have played in his lifetime, and how few we have left in manuscript, because everything was improvised. Nobody expected to play old music in the old days. It was always modern music. In Bach's time, everything was modern music. It wasn't frightening to them, as it is nowadays. It was always modern music, and so every service he would paint, most of the time would be improvisation. And when you're improvising, you must have control, otherwise it just becomes vacuous and doesn't work. And one of the ways in which you can do it as an organist is, of course, have a key structure. You must have a plan before you start to play, but also you can use certain figurations to, as it were, control your mind. And this can be a joyous piece. That'll control what you do. Uh, to take another analogy, the very famous comeback to Vidor, Toccata from the Fifth Symphony, which people have for their weddings now, and people play it far too fast. But the left hand is a train. He wanted it to be a train. He was writing it as a train. That was actually what he said he was doing. Trains go very fast nowadays. True, when we get the HS whatever, or something, like some people play. But in France, in 1919, trains went quite slowly. Take that rhythm into one of these chorales of Bach. And you immediately have an idea of the speed at which a piece should go. Now we're going to do one to see if it works. This is the Nantimitis. This is the Song of Simeon. Mit Fried und Freude ich fahre dahin. I, I leave the world with joy and peace. This is a very old man. This is the story of the purification. And Bach has to tell in music the story of the purification to these people. So this is Simeon going up to the temple. Very, very old man. Dum, da, da, 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 dum. And then he has the joy of seeing this baby Jesus. And you hear in the right hand, the tune goes right soaring up to the top of the keyboard as this joy comes into him. But the whole way through, Bach is doing these two things together. But the whole time, this old man is there. Dum, da, da, dum, da, da, dum, da, da, dum, da, da, dum. And he doubles that in the pedal. Dum, dee, dum, dee, dum, dee. Because the man has a walking stick. So going... Dum, da, da, dum, da, da, dum, da, da, 
dum dee dum one is the greatest of all the chorales in the Oberbuchlein. This is the um, extraordinary thing about Bach. He could take a very, very simple tune and he could ornament it in such a way that that becomes a piece of pure magic. O Mensch befeind dein Sundergroß, O man thy heavy sin bemoan, the great passion tide chorale. It's a very simple tune and you've got it in your, in your hand out there especially uh, with the simplicity of the tune and then the way in which Bach ornaments that tune and all the ornamentation is derived from that tune and if you didn't know the tune and you didn't have it there to follow you'd be very hard pressed to work out what the tune was from this ornamentation and this was where Bach the learned musician comes in as people have called him people always say why did Bach go to Leipzig it's the most extraordinary thing. If you think he began his life as an organist, he began in Arnstadt, and he was the, the great young virtuoso organist. He was uh, fated. Then he went to Weimar and became the great organist. Then he went to Kirsten and he became the great chamber musician. And he was very happy there and having a wonderful time. Why on earth would he go to Leipzig where in fact he was downgraded because he was just a town musician in Leipzig. He was the director musicés of the Thomas Kirk. He had to play the organ, but he also had to teach in the school Latin. 
He was a Latin teacher. And he had to teach at the university, instrumentalists. And he had all these students in those days living in his house with him and had to teach them, you know, composition and keyboard and this, that, and the other. Why on earth did he go to Leipzig? Do you know that Leipzig had more bookshops than any other city in Europe at that time? And I think that's what attracted Bach. Bach was a learned musician. Bach, all his life, was copying other people's music. He had an enormous musical library when he died. And he had an enormous amount of Italian violin music. And in this Omentrapavine, what you're really hearing is a violin solo derived from the chorale, the strength of the Lutheran chorale, given the Italian flavour of this wonderful virtuoso violin. It's just like a bandich in the Matthew Passion. It's the most amazing conception, but it's not Italian music, it's German music because of the accompaniment. The most important thing here is not just that you play the right hand with this, with this wonderful filigree, but that the left hand is supporting that filigree. That's the important thing. And the bass is supporting all the harmony. And the harmony of the accompaniment is quite and utterly astonishing, the things which he does. And if you've never heard this piece before, when you get to the cadence, the last three bars, you'll hold your breath because Bach does something which no other composer in the Baroque had ever thought of doing before. It's true, somebody has to think of something for the first time ever, but this is a piece of momentous thing. If you think of the Bach and you think of the Baroque and you think of the simplicity of most people's harmony at that time, what he does in this case is absolutely astonishing and it takes your breath away and it slows the whole thing down. But if you haven't heard it before, you're just not going to be able to imagine it's going to happen because nobody else has ever done it since either. It's the most extraordinary modulation. It's the sort of thing which if you did when you were doing a sort of D-mus at Durham, they'd say to you, failed, can't do that sort of thing. It's, it's pure magic. And that's what makes it so hard to play this piece. You can play this piece for, I've played it for more than 50 years now, and I think only twice I've ever played it and thought, that's right. And both times are completely different. And if I can tell you a little personal story, when I was trying to get into the Royal College of Music when I was 18, you had to play a piece of Bach. I chose this prelude. And I've never forgotten. I went there, and it was a great concert hall, and three judges, very old men they looked. One was the director at the time, a man called Ernest Bullock, Sir Ernest Bullock. And he turned the pages for me, very kind. And I played this, which, you know, I spent hours, days, actually months learning this piece. I thought, oh, I'm fantastic. Teenagers always think you're fantastic. Fantastic. And I've never forgotten uh, when I finished. And I had this wonderful cadence, and I was just sort of holding my breath. He whispered in my ear, young man, the Royal College of Music is the greatest conservatoire of music in the world and you cannot play a simple piece of Bach for your entrance examination. <laughs> now, four years later, four years later, when I thought I was absolutely the world's best, I went to Geneva to a man called Leonel Hogg. For my first lesson, what do you think he asked me to play? On Mensch Bevine. And I've never forgotten 
he made me play the first two bars 17 times. <laughs> At the end, he said, young man, you don't know how to play the organ. You know nothing about it. Just had four years. And that is the problem with this piece of music. This is why Bach is so wonderful. You play it again and again and again and again, and you never get the right answer. It's that magic of a great, wonderful composer and his music, and all the time you're trying to find the right way to do it. You have no idea. Every single time, it's a challenge. It's like climbing Everest, you know. You have to do it because it's there. But it's the fascination of this music for the player which makes you play it again and again and again. Thousandth performance, you're still learning how to play this piece. That's what really great music is all about. We're going to play, first of all, just the accompaniment and the tune. And then we play the proper piece so that you can hear what Bach does to that tune and the wonderment which happens to it. So here's just the plain chorale, but with Bach's harmonies underneath, the harmonies that support this simple chorale. Keep that in your head while you hear what Bach does with that.
It's sheer magic, isn't it, really? So I asked you seven questions. I hope the music has answered them. Why did Bach compile this collection? Nobody really knows. Maybe for the job at Liebfreundlich, maybe for the pupils, maybe for Wilhelm Friedman. Nobody knows. Why didn't he complete it? No idea. Mystery. What was the intention of these preludes? Well, you proved that they might have been accompaniments. But they're really for colouring, they're pictures, they're oral pictures of the texts. That was the important thing. That's the real point of, of these preludes, I'm sure. And then the thoughts which go through our mind when we're preparing to, to play them now in the 21st century, what speed we shall go at, what registrations. I hope I've persuaded you that the way we think about playing them is the correct way the way in which the tempo changes according to the mood of the piece, the way in which the registrations can be chosen because of reference to other works of Bach, other than organ music too. I hope we've proved to you that that's so. And then, mm, shall we tell a story? Yes, well, perhaps we shall. So you have a reward for coming here this evening. The last piece is the great Easter chorale, which is also an ascension chorale. Hoyt triumphere Gottes Sohn, today God's Son triumphs. This is a wonderful piece of majestic music. It is underpinned by a sort of shakon bass. Dum, 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 da, 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 dum, 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 dum. It's, it's really wonderful. This shakon bass underpins and its joy at the top, it rushes around. And so this is your reward for coming this evening. Hoy triumphant got his son. that should send you out with joy in your hearts and convince you that the Orgelbuchlein is the jewel in the crown of all of Bach's music. Thank you for coming this evening and thank you to David Lofgren from Stockholm for playing so wonderfully. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.